Hopefully we'll get through Psalms 31 to 35, so if you have your Bibles, turn there. Although they're not really super long, they are, they have, there's a lot of meat in them, but we'll try to work through Psalms 31, Psalms 31. And as I prayed before, you know, David goes through so much, um, and a lot, a lot of the things that he goes through when he records in the Psalms, and, and you know, it's so, I don't know, refreshing just to read God's Word and say, yes, I, I go through that same thing. To read God's Word and, and say, yes, I mean, I'm being falsely accused, or I'm, I'm going through a trial, a tribulation, and I'm crying out to God. All of those things are recorded in, in the Psalms. And, um, and so, I know for me, as I say often, um, teaching them is, is really ministering, studying them, and teaching them is ministering to me as I go through the Psalms and see the things that I'm going through in my life a lot of times. And I pray that it does the same for you. So, um, Psalm 31, a brief inter introduction. Um, David intended this psalm to be sung in public. So it's public praise, public worship. Most of the psalms, many of them were put to music and were intended to be sung. In, and, uh, but what I love about this one is it's not a real praise psalm. It's a, it has a somber tone to it. So I think what, what this psalm does is it tends to give us, sort of gives us permission to sing those hymns or those songs that aren't necessarily just always praise, but that might have a more somber tone to them, just expressing the reality of, of what we go through. And uh, we can even express that in song. Um, and so And so David does that. He's dedicated it to the chief musician, so definitely meant to be sung in a, in a public setting. It expresses the affliction of David and his appeal to God for protection and deliverance. So often we see the same themes running through the Psalms. He's, a, he's being afflicted and he appeals to God for protection. There were many examples in David's life where he might have been in a place to cry out for protection and for deliverance. We're studying that in, uh, on other Wednesdays as we go through 1 Samuel. We see Saul seeking David's life and he's pursuing him. And we see David uh, running from Saul. And we see the, the affliction that David is going through. And I think it's not a coincidence that we're, we're seeing that. We're studying the Psalms at the same time. It could also refer to a sorrowful time in David's life when his son Absalom rebelled against him. You know, and, and that certainly lends itself to the somber tone of this song. Whatever the situation is in David's life, we, can ne we should never lose the application to our own lives. And that's what these songs are intended to do, to apply those situations, apply David's responses. And he usually takes us through a journey. He usually takes us through... through um, desperation and despair to prayer and to praise. And many of the Psalms take us through that. So, as we go through those same things, we can apply these things to our lives. There are many instances of sorrow and affliction that can be expressed 
through the reading and the studying of the Psalms. So Psalms are really just, you know, they're awesome for that for that reason, and the application is, uh, is always there. So um, in verses 1 through 6, we see, we see David here pleading for help from the Lord as he testifies of his trust in God's ability to protect and deliver. And, and I think that that's important, too, as we plead for God to protect us, to deliver us from our affliction, we have to believe it. And David did. David shows his trust in the Lord. So, in verses 1 through 6, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. So here we see David openly expressing his faith. He, he starts off pleading for God to, to, to consider the affliction that he's going through. But he does that in light of his trust and his faith in God to do that. Because we can trust that God will consider our affliction, we can believe it and we can be confident that he will deal with our afflictions. And in verse 2, we see God condescending. It says there he bows down his ear to hear. You know, God condescends to hear us. You know, he doesn't have to. He wants a relationship with us. And that relationship goes in both directions. That relationship also takes us from praise to just a time of just falling on our, on our faces before Him. And He wants that. He condescends. He, he bows down to hear us. God is our great protection. In verse 3 it says, it says, You are my rock and my fortress. We need to trust Him. And it also says there that He will lead and guide us. Again, when we're, sometimes we're going through something and we just don't know which way to turn. You know, we seem to come up against against dead ends at every at every turn. We just don't know what to do. God will lead and guide us. He loves us. He'll never lead us into destruction. That's something that we always have to remember. Because sometimes in our prayers we'll hear from God and we'll 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 get direction from Him. We'll get guidance from Him. But it just doesn't sound right. Just doesn't seem right in our eyes. But in God's eyes, see, He sees the end from the beginning. He knows everything that's going, going to happen along the way. We just need to trust in His guidance. In verse 4, David felt like a captive animal in the net of a trap, in the, in the, in the trap of a hunter. Sometimes we can feel trapped also by our enemies, those people that may be coming against us. You know, just trapping us in a corner, not knowing which way to turn, God is always our refuge. 
We can trust that he'll rescue us. Verse 5. This, this verse is expressing David's confidence that even if he should die, because of the, of the affliction that he's going through, that God will be merciful to him. It says here, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, and I think that's also the way we should look at, at what we're going through. No matter what happens, God, maybe you're going to take me through it, bring me out of it, and I'll praise you for that. But Lord, if you don't, if for some reason you allow this affliction, this trial, to completely overtake me, I know that I can trust you. I can put myself in your hands. I know that you'll be merciful. And as believers, we can have that confidence. As we commit ourselves to Him, He'll redeem us. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see David expressing gratitude for the grace and mercy that God has shown him. He says, I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversity. You have not shut me up in the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. I love this because David moves very quickly from his prayer, from expressing his affliction to God, from, from, from seeking God's protection and his, and his deliverance, and he's already rejoicing. Now, whether God had delivered him already, or if David is just anticipating God's goodness and God's grace in his life, he's rejoicing in that already. He's so sure of God's ability and desire to rescue David that he's praising him already. I think for us, we need to get to that place. That, that as, even as we are praying for deliverance, that we can say, but God, I praise you. Nonetheless, I praise you. I know you'll be merciful, God. And I love that David just, just, he just went right into his rejoicing. He rejoices in his mercy. And then in verses 9 to 13, David, David sort of goes in and gives us a greater description of exactly what he's, what he's going through, the situation that he's facing. He says, um, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. See, God, uh, David was saying to God, It's affecting me spiritually, emotionally, physically, God. This affliction that I'm going through. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Just simple. Simple crying out to God. Then in verse 10, he says, For my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and then repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. Wow, David's in trouble. David's in trouble. But you notice, he's not only in trouble with his enemies. It says in verse 11, but especially among my neighbors. And I am repulsive to my acquaintances. How does someone get to that point where he's even hated amongst his friends? 
because of his affliction? I don't really know. I'm not really sure what would have caused David's neighbors and acquaintances even to, um, to slander him, to, to hate him. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just human nature. You know, people can be cruel. And sometimes even your friends, those who you think are your friends, will come against you. You know, but, but uh, you know, that, that's just, again, the somber tone of the song, and yet it's to be sung. You know, we see David just, just describing this very, very desperate situation that he's in. In verses 14 through 18, David is now pleading in an even stronger way to God to deliver him. And he's giving reasons for God to consider his affliction. I don't know if you've ever done that. You know, God, if you've really been, really been faithful this week, please consider what I'm going through. You ever sort of tried to make a deal with God? But uh, David says in verse 14, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be, be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. See, now David expresses his faith in the Lord in the midst of this trial. And he also says here that in... Um, He says in verse 14, I trust in you, O Lord. He's saying, God, I trust you. I'm calling out to you. I'm crying out to you now in my distress. But I trust you. The diverse changes that we go through, like David goes through, not only reveal our character, but also they strengthen and they build our character. So whatever David is going through, whatever we go through, it's there for God to use in our lives, to strengthen us. And then God gets all the glory for bringing us through it. It's only because of His mercy that we even get through those situations that we're going through, those desperate situations. And then in verses 19 through 22, we see David now confident in God's desire. We saw him desperate at the beginning of the psalm crying out to God, describing those things that he's going through. And now we see his confidence in God his, and God's desire to bless him. Oh, how great is your goodness, verse 19, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. O oh, love the Lord, all you his saints. For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully rep repays the proud person. 
Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. I love the way it ends. Strength. Sometimes we just feel weak in what we're going through, but God will strengthen our hearts if we hope in Him. In verses 19 and 20, we see the fullness of God's goodness. And that it's only available to those who trust in Him. And I, I also like in what it says there that it is in your presence, in your presence, that He'll hide us. It's God's presence in our lives that preserves us. It's God's presence in our lives that will deliver us from those things that we're going through. And we can only have His presence in, in our lives when we have that relationship. See, it's our sin that separates us. It's our iniquities that separate us from God. When we're righteous, when we're living godly lives, our relationship with God is restored, and His presence in our lives is restored. And I love in verse 22, you see, we see even David's showing here is unbelief. It says, in, in my haste, in verse 22, I said, I have cut off from before your eyes. How many times that we go through something that just in our, just in a moment, we'll say, God, I'm just done for. There's no way that you can get me out of this one. And that's what David's saying. He's saying, he's, he's admitting, he's confessing his unbelief. He's saying, in my haste, I said, I'm cut off from before your eyes. But then he turns, nevertheless, nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. See, that unbelief occurred in that moment of affliction, in the confusion of what he was going through. He had that moment of unbelief, but then he quickly turned. I love that. Whatever David experienced in this circumstance, he wants to encourage us to trust Trust that God will deal righteously with those who trust in Him, and that our hope needs to be fully on God to deliver us. Now, Psalm, 20, Psalm uh, 32. Psalm 32 is a penitential psalm, which is a song of confession, but it's also an evangelistic psalm. You see, I look at it this way. When we confess our sin to God, when we confess our need for Him, and we receive His forgiveness, how much can we then express that to others? You know, that, that becomes the evangelistic aspect of this song. When we're forgiven, we can tell others of God's grace and God's mercy in our lives. Blessedness can always be attributed to those who have recognized their sinful condition and the need to confess and be forgiven. Blessedness comes through that. Peace comes from our repentance over sin and a sense of God's mercy and grace. We can have peace. And this is something that we can speak about to others. This, is, this can be an open door for us to speak about God's grace. From the title, uh, it says, a Psalm of David, a contemplation. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's maskil. And that, that gives us the, the idea that it can be used for instruction. 
not just the contemplation, but also for instruction. And it's interesting that we can learn, well, whatever we learn about God's grace and mercy, we can instruct others, or we can impart that to others, because God's worked in our lives. The, the psalm is primarily about confession, both personal and corporate, and the blessings that come from the forgiveness of God. So beginning in verses 1 and 2, a psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David starts off explaining the condition of all men. We're all transgressors. It says in, in Romans, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. None of us escapes that. We're all transgressors. That's the condition of all men. But the condition of someone who receives forgiveness, blessedness, blessings. So although we all sin, we can all also receive the blessings of God. Our sin is covered. And then he mentions the doctrine of non-imputation. Non-imputation. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. See, this doesn't mean that when we're forgiven that we are without iniquity, but it means that Jesus exchanged His righteousness with our sinfulness. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He made, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So, non-imputation. God does not impute our deserved iniquity to us. He put it on His Son, and we, and we in turn uh, receive His righteousness. See, God sees us in the shadow of Jesus. He looks at us, but He sees Jesus. If we've put our faith and trust in God for our salvation and the finished work of Christ, God sees us through His Son. And then in verses 2 through 5, these are David's personal confessions. He said, um, and actually 3, three through 5, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Stay alive. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Twice there, he stops and considers God's grace. See, when he kept silent, David is saying, his bones grew old. When he held back his confession, when he held back his repentance, it caused him to feel a heaviness upon him. It says day and night in verse uh, 4, Your hand was heavy upon me. Holding back conf confession, we suffer in silence. And you feel God's hand of cor correction and discipline upon you. And sometimes that hand is heavy. It says in Hebrews, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. 
See, that chastening of God, that chastening of God, was heavy upon David. Because he was holding back. He was, he was silent about his sin. And then in verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. Now it's like a relief. David just confessed that sin. And he obtained God's mercy. I love that. I love that. The heaviness of God upon us to just to just urge us, to sort of push us toward, towards repentance. And then just the weight of confession coming off our, our shoulders. The weight of that sin comes off when we confess and we receive God's mercy. Verses 6 and 7. They extend the blessings of forgiveness to everyone who seeks God and His mercy. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time where you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. When we confess and God forgives, other blessings will come our way. Notice how sometimes if we've been holding back something from God, when we release it, it sort of opens a door for God to bless us in other ways in our life. When we seek godliness, God will show additional mercies to us. And then in verses 8 and 9, we switch and we start to, we hear God's voice now. And how He answers that person who's forgiven. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. I love that. That's, that's personal. That's personal. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be, must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. God's voice of instruction and guidance. Who better than God to give instruction and guidance? And His Word is written instruction to us. And it's written under His watchful eye. I love that. Just that picture of God and the intimacy, the personal relationship that He has with us. But He says, don't be stubborn. Don't be like a, a, a horse or a mule that I have to forcibly move into repentance and confession. And then just finishing up in verses 10 and 11. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. See, the comparison, the sorrows and the rejoicing. Be glad in the Lord, verse 11, and rejoice in you righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. When we confess and we receive God's forgiveness, it should cause us to praise Him. It should cause us to rejoice in Him. And we are only upright in heart because of His righteousness, not, of, not from anything that we've done. So the sorrows of holding back from God versus the rejoicing of receiving His forgiveness. Then Psalm 33. Psalm 33, we don't know who authored it, there's no indication of the author of this psalm. Um, I, I say that in the psalms that don't have an author, just 
the Holy Spirit inspired all of them. So we can attribute the Holy Spirit to this one, especially. Let's give all the credit to God. Sometimes we tend to look at the at the man that's writing in the Psalms and, and sort of uh, look at look at him. But here we just can give all of the credit to God, give the attention to God alone. It speaks of praising God and the fact that as believers we're exhorted to give God praise and worship at all times. And that sometimes is the tough part. So starting off in verses one through three, it tells us that as his people we're expected to praise him. And that God takes pleasure in us praising Him. It says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. So, in verse 1, we see that God gets the honor and, and the glory when we praise Him. And that he takes pleasure in that. It says that the praise of the upright is beautiful. And God takes pleasure in when we praise him. Those who have accepted Jesus as Savior, we are upright in his eyes. See, in our natural state, we can't praise him. It says, and we just learned this uh, in John chapter 4, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we must be upright in order to praise God, for Him to receive that praise, and for Him to take pleasure in that praise. And we can worship God in many different ways. I mean, think about, I mean, it says here that you can praise Him with the heart, make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. I'm not sure what, what that is, probably a harp. Sing to Him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. So, many musicians, voices, can praise Him. Voices and instruments that can be used to praise the Lord. I, I think sometimes we get, we get too restricted in our thoughts about praising Him. In Psalm 150, it says, Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So, if you don't like the drums, it's, it's biblical. And talk to John about it. No, but it's just, sometimes we get stuck in traditions, you know? Um, but, but God is very clear here. We can use many things to praise Him. You know, even dance, uh, different instruments, certainly our voices can lift up praise. And in verses 4 and 5, they tell us that we should praise the Lord because of who He is, because of His character. It says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all His work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. God's Word, it's true and it's just. And He should be praised, if for nothing else, because of that. Because His Word is true. And He loves the truth. And He loves those who exhibit truth and justice in their lives. 
And I believe, I really truly believe that if we exhibit truth and justice, that that's a form of worship. That God receives that as worship. Because it's his character. His character is truth and justice. Now, verses 6 and 7, he speaks of the majesty of creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the hosts, and all the hosts of them, by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. So we look around at nature, we see the glory, we see the awe, we see his power. We see the sovereignty of God in, in everything around us. And it's all occurred for, by the word of his mouth. I love that. It's just a really great picture of the awesome power of God in creation. And then in verses 8 through 11, we move now from worship to fear. But that fear is manifested in awe and wonder. It says in verse 8, Let us... Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. And He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Why should we praise God? Verse 9, because... By his very voice, he commands all things. For he spoke and it was done. We should praise him for his power, for his awesome power. We should praise him because, in verse 10, because of his supremacy over all the human rulers of the earth. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes it the, the plans of the people of no effect. God's plans are better than any of our plans. And we should praise Him for that. And we should praise Him because of His wisdom and His counsel and His goodness and the desire of plans of goodness for His people. I know many of you know this verse, and this is one of my favorites too, in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts I have, the, the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's the plans of God's heart toward those who love Him. Good. Peace. Not evil. So no matter what we're going through, we may think that God doesn't love us at that time. But His plans for us are always good. And then in verses 12 through 19, it speaks of the blessings of God upon those who worship Him and give Him glory. It also compares His awesome power with His intimate care for His people. And I love that. It says in verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, Yahweh, the people He has chosen as His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. So we see his view, his panoramic view of all of the things in the world, all of the people, all the nations. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. So we can just think of God in his grandeur, in his majesty. But then, 
In verse 15, he fashions their hearts individually. Individually. He considers all their works. Make that comparison in your mind. The majesty of God who sees all of the nations in one view fashioned your heart individually. Each and every one of us. I love that. And he considers us. It's a relationship. It's a very, very special relationship. Then it says in verses 16 through 19, the king is saved by the the, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse's vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. So now David again is contrasting here the, the trust that man has in his own devices or that a kingdom or that a nation would have in its strength contrasted with the one who really brings deliverance, God. The one who really sees and considers our needs and our affliction. God looks upon those who trust in Him for their protection and deliverance. And then the psalm concludes with an exhortation to wait upon the Lord because He can be trusted for the outcome. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Again, our exhortation to do the toughest thing, and that's wait upon the Lord. As believers, we can pray for God's mercy. See, unbelievers don't have that same access to God. It's reserved, it says, for those who hope in God. And that's, that's us as believers. And now, uh, Psalm 34. Psalm 34 alludes to David's thoughts regarding a particular incident in his life. And we have a brief account of what we think this incident is in 1 Samuel 21, and we just went over that a few weeks back. Um, it's pretty certain that the events that David is, is uh, speaking about and alluding to in this psalm are those same events in 1 Samuel 21. Just to go over a few of the verses in that, it says in 1 Samuel 21.10, Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took those words to heart, and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, and scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. So, speaking of that incident, David records his thoughts regarding it. And when David changed his behavior in that account in 1 Samuel 21, he exhibited his lack of trust in God to deliver him. And, you know, he really went to great lengths, feigning insanity and drooling on your beard 
especially in that culture, it, was, it, it, it brought shame upon you. But David was willing to do that, and, and I really believe that it was because he lost trust in, in God to deliver him. It's interesting that in the psalm, though, nothing specific is mentioned regarding that incident. It just sort of mentions it loosely. What David does is, he records more of God's goodness and his deliverance and his grace. And even though he played the fool back in that original account, wisely he doesn't dwell on that in this psalm. He refers to the blessings of continued devotion to God. And this psalm also is like a few others that we've seen and others that we will see in the form of an acrostic, which means that each verse begins with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now there are two major divisions to this psalm. Uh, verses 1 through 10 are a hymn, hymn, which David addresses specifically to God, praising Him. And then in verses 11 through 22, David addresses his thoughts to man. So, let's start with uh, verses 1 through 3. A psalm of David, when he, pre pre when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. David resolves to praise the Lord no matter what. I love that. He says his praise will continually be in his mouth. Now, for God's praise to be continually in our mouth, that means that it, it, we will be praising him sometimes in the midst of trials and, and troubles. But that's what David is exhorting us to do. And he resolves to do that himself. Paul even wrote in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. So there should be no time that we should say, God, I can't praise you. We should be praising him at all times. And then in verse 3, he invites others to praise. And I love that. I think when we're blessed by the Lord, we shouldn't keep it to ourselves. You know, this, that's an opportunity for us to just tell others about God's blessing in our lives and invite them to praise Him too, along with us. You know, and then corporate praise, you know, when we get together in a group and we just lift our voices to the Lord in praise, that's an awesome thing. Or even in a prayer, at a prayer meeting, when we bring praise reports to a prayer meeting, we, we invite others to rejoice. In, in, uh, in, in a group, and I think that's great. In verses 4 through 7, David relates his experience with the Lord in the circumstances that he finds himself in. He says, I sought the Lord and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and they were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So, here David, in these verses, he records four phases of our relationship with God. When we're going through a time of trouble. First, we fear. In verse 4, it says, "...and delivered me from all my fears." 
How many times we are in a fearful situation? That's part of our relationship with God. Because the next step in verse 6, it says, the poor man cried out. When we're in fear, we always need to go to that next step and cry out to the Lord. Seek Him. Why? Because the Lord hears. It says in verse 6, and the Lord heard him. And that's the confidence that we can have in our relationship with God. That when we fear, we can cry out to Him. He'll heal us. And then in verse 7, He delivers us. And He'll deliver us. So, I love that. that just that, those four phases of our relationship with God. We need to go through all of them. We can't stop on fear. Fear is not from God. We need to then cry out to Him. And then we need to receive that blessing and the deliverance. Then in verses 8 through 10, David exhorts those who believe in God to realize His goodness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. There is no want to those who fear Him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Verse 8, our relationship with God satisfies all our senses. We should be devouring the things of God. Instead of seeking to be satisfied by the things of the world, all good things will come to us from the Lord. He doesn't withhold anything from us. See, our problem, though, is this. Our idea of good and God's idea of good. Sometimes, they don't, uh, they don't meet up. They don't match. See, God will give us all good things. It says, those who seek the Lord shall not like, lack any good thing. But what is our idea of what good is? It's to line up with God's. And then in verses 11 through 14, it says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is an exhortation to us to remain faithful. It's an encouragement to us to remain faithful. If we want goodness to be prominent in our life, we should do the things that please God, not do the evil things. It speaks about some of the evil things in verses 13 and 14. It says, keep your tongue from evil, gossip, and div divisive words. You know, our tongues <laughs> get us into a lot of trouble. Any anyone who's married can attest to that. And even those who are. Our tongues can get us into a lot of trouble. And sometimes they speak evil things. In James, I know the ladies went through this in their Bible study. In James 3 6, it says, The tongue is a fire and a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Pretty harsh words. 
And every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an, un, it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in the similitude of God. Think about that. On Sunday mornings, we're praising God. On Sunday nights, we're on the phone gossiping to somebody about somebody else. That doesn't make sense. See, our tongues can get us into so much trouble. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, James writes, these things ought not to be so. So he's speaking the same thing here that David's speaking. And then in verses 15 through 22, it speaks regarding the character of God toward the righteous and toward the wicked. So we see how God deals with both. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. So we see how God deals with both the righteous and with the wicked. And I love that it says here in verse 19, the, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Now hold on a second, God. I thought you were on my side. Why are afflictions many toward the righteous? But then it says the Lord delivers him out of them all. See, God allows afflictions. There's a reason. Sometimes we don't get it. Most times we don't get it. But it doesn't say, as, as we see here God's character regarding the righteous and the wicked, we don't see that the wicked receive all the afflictions and the righteous don't receive any. We don't see that. We never see that in Scripture. See, God sees and hears. He's attentive to us. He considers us. His entire being is set on people. Whether for good, when it comes to those who are His, or for evil regarding those who don't believe His judgment. He relates to the righteous in a personal, personal way. The righteous cry out in verse 17, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And the Lord is near. I love that. He's near. He's not far. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. You know the old saying, if God seems far from you, you're the one who's probably moved. God is near to those who have a contrite heart, a broken heart. What is your heart broken for? Is it broken for sin? Is it broken for the sin in your life? God is near to you. He's personal. We need to be humble. It's good to be broken. 
in, 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 to be a Christian and to be broken is a good thing. It means we're closer to God. And again, he doesn't promise that our troubles will cease when we come to, come to him. So, you know, that, that's something that we, we, we always see. He promises deliverance, though, through our troubles. We need to be focused on the big picture, our relationship with God, and that there's no condemnation. It says in verse 22, And none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. In Romans 8, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We don't get condemned. We can go, you know what, I think we're going to stop in Psalm 34, because Psalm 35 is pretty, is pretty involved. It takes us through three cycles of of uh, just crying out to God, of prayer, and of praise. And so I'm going to hold that off till, till the next time. But, um, you know, I, again, the practicality of the Psalms, the application to our lives, seeing David go through these things, seeing God deal with us as believers, as those who trust in Him, and seeing how He deals righteously, justly, with the, with the wicked. We should... Just leave everything in His hands. Sometimes we like to take things, take matters into our own hands. Sometimes when, especially here we see David, men coming against him, even his friends and his neighbors coming against him, sometimes we like to seek revenge and get, take matters into our own hands. We should just be leaving it in God's able hands. He handles it so much better than we would. So, uh, I think... For the most part, those things uh, we saw tonight, we saw kind of prayer, you know, just crying out. There's nothing wrong with just crying out to the Lord in times of trouble and in times of praise. So um, I pray that the Psalms, uh, that these Psalms definitely spoke to you, they spoke to me. Um, the Psalm uh, of Confession, just restoring that relationship back, you know, the necessity and the blessedness of, of confession and then forgiveness that comes from that and then being able to, to share that with others. So, um, I pray that they, that they bless you as they did me. Why don't we close in prayer and in worship? Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight, Lord. We thank you for your, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for